Good morning. So from Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had become had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for this, the gift of your word. May it be a light for our path. May it be food for our soul. May our eyes be lifted to you this morning and ongoingly. Amen. Well, good morning. I was going to make jokes about having the thurifer out, um, having the thurible out today and sort of, you know, getting the incense going. Um, to account for the smell, but no one thought that was a funny joke, and clearly everyone else here doesn't think so either, so I won't bother mentioning it. Um, welcome to uh, the second but last uh, engagement with our origin story, uh, which uh, today, particularly compared to last week, where we had to have multiple readings to get through Noah and his ark, and we didn't even get to the juicy bit where Noah gets drunk. Um, we actually have quite a short story uh, from the beginning of chapter 11 here about the Tower of Babel, or Babel. I say Babel, you say Babel, tomato, tomato, <laughs> let's call the whole thing off. Um, and, uh, and so we're in these last few weeks and these last few chapters, and, uh, and what we've been doing, of course, is looking at our origin story. We've been hearing the story of the generations of the descendants of the heavens and the earth, and the, the story of the descendants of Adam, and the story of the descendants of Noah, and now we're getting to the story of the descendants of Noah's sons. And this is our origin story. We are meant to find ourselves here. If we are all children of Adam and Eve then we're meant to find ourselves in that moment at the dawn of time. And if we're all their descendants, then we're also all the children of Noah and his family. And we're meant to find ourselves in this moment at the dawn of the post-diluvian age. And uh, so what we find here is that our origin story has become something of a post-apocalyptic story. So, little thought experiment right now. What is your favourite post-apocalyptic movie or story? I am legend. 
Yeah. World War Z. The book's better than the movie. Quiet Place. Hmm? The Road. Oh, really? Okay, so this, I'm uncultured. Notice I haven't mentioned Russell Crowe's and Emma Watson's Noah movie because that doesn't exist. <laughs> so think about that. Those sorts of movies where it, it's after some sort of global catastrophe. And here's the point of post-apocalyptic stories. On the one hand, they have pain and disaster, travail, something cataclysmic happens, and at the same time there is hope. These are the stories of, of the survivors. The remnant emerges from the place where they have clung to life, from the cave where they have sheltered, or the bunker, or the ark where they have been, and blinking they step into the sun. Somehow the broken world is now new in these stories. Fresh as a blank slate, a ready, readiness to begin again. So whatever the pain has been in the story, it starts to turn into birth pains. Whatever crisis or suspense or loss, it begins to merge into what can grow from this in this fresh new world. And that's why these stories and these movies work, because there is a yearning in us for some sort of rebirth. A, a, a start again for ourselves and for the whole world. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, there is goodness in human yearning that can be channeled into prayer and a desire to see God's kingdom come. It speaks to who we are. It's no accident that the dark years of World War II were followed by a decade or two of creative or sometimes creatively destructive generations. A generation came back from the brink of death and asked, now we have peace, what will we do with it? So imagine, thought experiment, what would you do if you woke up one morning and stepped out of your front door into a world that was somehow inexplicably full of fresh, clear air and a moment of abundance and possibility with all the baggage of society gone, what would you do with that fresh new world? What would you make? What would you build? What would you turn that into? Well, in our origin story, amongst the generations of the sons of Noah, this wasn't a thought experiment, this was reality. The family steps out of the ark into a world that's not only washed clean but has been reborn and we see what they do. And it is, of course, a very human story. And what do they do? They settle down. They build a city and they advance in technology. Rather than building things by cobbling stones together, they did what God had done and they made something out of the dust. And God, being God, could make people out of the dust. And our ancestors, being our ancestors, out of the dirt, they could make lumps of dirt. And they called them bricks. They invented bricks. And now they could really transform the environment. 
and fashion for themselves a dwelling place. Now they can be the creators. And with this newfound technology, their passion had no limits. They reached high, high and for the stars and tempted to build a city with a tower that could reach the heavens and they reached for eternity. Let's make a name for ourselves, they say, that will last forever. And the imagery and the language is clear. They are aspiring to divinity itself. Forget Adam and Eve's temptation, did God really say. The temptation here is, who needs God at all? We've got bricks. So the generations of the sons of Noah, our ancestors, act like children trying to take over the family farm. They grasp for that which only pertains to God. They attempt to usurp their creator, their father. And so this origin story inserts a narrative tension that persists right through the whole book. Right through to the time of Jesus, right through to our time, right through until the time when our Lord returns. And that tension is this, it's the tension of kingdoms. The kingdom of bricks, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God. And this is the language that Jesus used, doesn't he? When he comes, he says, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Repent and believe. And of course, right here, we have the beginnings of this kingdom of earth. Except perhaps we might want to use a different word. There's another word for kingdom. That word is empire. Babel is the first human empire. And if the saga of the Bible can be summed up as anything, it would be this. This is the story of God's kingdom versus human empire. And if we read all the way to the end, we are asking the question, who will win and how? But let's not rush to the end just yet. Come back and sit in the tension of the moment. Come and peruse this fresh new world and think about what human tendency is. What do humans tend to do when we have this blank slate to build upon? We build an empire. That's what we do. That is our way, and our origin story reveals it. And sometimes it's explicit, isn't it? We can look back over the human story and we can see people like Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Queen Victoria, Hitler. When the field of opportunity opens up, we humans unify ourselves around empires, ordered, hierarchical, totalizing power structures that embrace some form of divine rights. And you can see that explicitly in things like Rome, where the Roman emperors would set themselves up as deities. And so the first clash, the first evangelistic opportunity for Christians following the days of Jesus was when the state demanded worship Caesar and the Christians politely declined, actually, no, Jesus is Lord. Emperor versus king of kings. 
And so it's sometimes explicit. But it's also the case when imperialism of the human heart deludes itself. The rise of communism in the 20th century may have been, in its spin, anti-imperialistic. But it was also empire, complete with venerated leaders, enforced unity, totalising narratives about the how the world works, and a necessary displacement of religious faith. All ideologies tend towards imperialism. And similarly, unrestricted Western-style capitalism might claim to be freedom fries, but that's just spin. Perhaps we see in the British Empire something of it. It was built on the back of trade routes, after all, and we can see how that was called an empire, but even it's here in the present. But we don't have empires anymore, but do we? We have business empires we have brands and global conglomerates. We have ideological movements which aren't much more than just marketing campaigns. We are looking at something totalizing, invasive, demanding more and more of our allegiance and loyalty and expecting us to do it with religious fervor. So both communism and capitalism are empires, even if they are deluded movements that think they are not. One is Orwell's 1984 and the other is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. One ex exerts coercion and control and the other manipulates and deadens us with distraction. But I could go on and on about the sociology of it all. It's not about that. We all feel the clash of these kingdoms at work. Whenever we think about the powers that be that seem to be in the way of goodness and righteousness and justice, we're interacting with that. Maybe we think about the subtle rules that hold people in their right place or keeping them living in the appropriate postcode. And all of that has its roots in Babel. And can I tell you, as someone who comes in from the outside of English society, and I know there's a number of us in this room who are like that. One of the gifts of that is that you have to learn the imperial rules. They don't come naturally. You have to learn the things that keep people in the packing orders, what puts people on the outside, what keeps people on the inside, what a little pinch of salt offered will get you over here, and how much will that compromise you or keep you unified or excluded. And this is true even in the church world. We build our empires and we can do it with theological and spiritual bricks as much as those that we form with our own hands. A, a few years ago in Australia, I was part of a, 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 a thing called Church Together. It was this big event that was put together by the churches in our city to sort of celebrate unity. It was fantastic. It was organised by uh, some very fervent church leaders and they did an excellent job advertising material, ads on the TV, the whole works. It was great. And they came up with this tagline that expressed their theme of unity, what could go wrong? And they must have Googled really well because the tagline was, if they are one, then nothing is impossible for them. And they hadn't realised they were quoting Genesis 3, referring to the residents of Babel. <laughs> they were talking about God's enemies. 
But you, but you can see why. Unity is good. Being one holy Catholic apostolic church is one of the fundamental marks of what it means to be God's people. We looked at this last year. But when that unity is not centered or focused on Jesus Christ, it is a false unity. It's a form of empire. Unity can be beautiful. It can mean harmony and multi-part singing as sharing together in God. The body image that Paul uses in Corinthians to speak about the church is exactly that. We are one body with many members. Unity in our diversity, the strong serving, the weak honoured, and all caught up into the head who is Christ our Lord. But if you've read stories about how churches work, particularly in recent years, you can also understand that unity can be misused to insist on loyalty and compliance, agreement with power and silencing. And even church leaders, even senior church leaders, can aspire to unity and land us only in conformity in a bid to save an ecclesiastical empire. And we see all this in our origin story. So let's turn to see what God does, because that's the point. God deals with us, and he deals with the residents of Babel, and that dealing with them is definitely a judgment. It's a right judgment, a dealing with their rebellion. He confuses them. He destroys their unity, but like all of God's judgment, it's also a kindness. His confusion of their languages stops the empire. It stops the building work. They put down their bricks. But it also creates the tribes and nations and peoples. The great kaleidoscope that will one day be the colour of the choir of eternal worship. Where there will be true unity centred not on ourselves but on the Lamb who's on the throne. When the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost... There was this sense in which the judgment of Babel was overturned, but the kindness of it remained. The sign of the kingdom of God at Pentecost is tongues, which everyone can hear. But it's not some mushed-down, compliant discourse in which everyone spoke some bland form of Esperanto. Everyone spoke their own language and everyone heard them in their own language. Their heart could speak, and their heart could hear, and in the trueness of themselves they were won by the power of the Spirit. Their tongue, their thoughts, their souls caught up into the one unity of the worship of God by God's Spirit himself. That's what God does. He brings us unity, but on his terms, not ours. So come back with me once again to the origin story, this fresh earth, this new beginning. Step out and blink in the new day sun. What will you do if you found yourself in a freshly baked earth ready to be built? You know the lesson that comes from all those post-apocalyptic stories? I'm thinking of Hunger Games, but there's others. When those who overcome are offered the chance to build the new thing, the ones who are shown to be the wisest characters 
lay their opportunity down. Those who have passed through apocalyptic fire, the ones who have learned what it means, realize how easily their desires and all the problems that led to the cataclysm in the first place were still with them in here. They realize how easily it could happen again. And so there's some form of laying it down. And next week what we'll do is we'll find out how God comes into this new space and interweaves his kingdom into the history of humanity. But that is next week. It's going to be a fun one. But at the beginning of it, the heart of the gospel is to turn towards the kingdom of God and to do what Jesus says, which is to repent. And at the heart of that is to let him do what he does. We know what Jesus would do with a fresh start in building the kingdom of God. He would bring about a kingdom in which the poor in spirit are blessed and the peacemakers are blessed and the meek are the ones who inherit the earth because they would never corrupt it. And we know what Jesus will do when the heavens and the earth pass not through the flood but through the fire and are truly made new. He will shine like the sun, he will be the lamb on the throne and he will be our all in all. And it won't be about us. And we know what Jesus has done when he calls for us to help begin in that. When he makes us a new creation in the here and now so that we are no more in condemnation here in the grace of God we stand. As his people we image what will be. The kingdom he is bringing has brought and will bring. And what we do to join in with that is to not pick up our bricks, but to say with our reborn soul, build your kingdom here. And the only way to do that is to do what the founder of the empire of God does, which is to lay down our lives. To be the ones who don't strive for eternity, that we don't strive for our name, that we don't strive to reach the heavens in our own strength, in our own terms, with our own bricks. We put our bricks down and we say, Lord, your will be done. And we do that as individuals, we do that ourselves. I heard wisdom ones that talked about how the character of, of a leader or anyone who seeks to be some, a part of the kingdom of God is that you look at them and say, if you're not dead, I don't trust you because I've met too many humans. We do that when we look in the mirror. But if you've laid your, down, your life for the sake of Jesus, you will look more like him. And that I can trust. So we do that for ourselves. And we do it for our churches. I heard wisdom once about the most effective church growth strategy. It's simply this. Those who seek to save their life will lose it. But those who lose it, who, those who lay it down for my sake will find it. So Lord, you build your church and confuse us if you have to until we put down our bricks. So it's true for ourselves, it's true for our churches. And it's true for nations and for this world. The other week, Jill and I met someone who impacted us greatly. I won't say her name here because it's going online. But she's a Palestinian Christian who holds and embodies a hope for reconciliation in her country. And she's an activist for sure and she works for peace. But underneath it is this recognition 
that it will only happen, Lord, when you bring the true unity of Jew and Gentile and you build your kingdom as the two come together with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. So as we leave this origin story for today, we can turn our eyes inwards and deal with the empires of our own heart. We can turn our eyes to close around us and look at the empires we find in church. But we can also turn our eyes outwards to see what we see. Behold the empires of this current world. Behold the nations on our doorstep. Behold the nations far afield. Behold the power posturing. Behold the forces at work. And part of me wants to say, thank you, Lord, that you have restrained it so far. Thank you, Lord, that you have held back the worst of human empire. But now, Lord, have your way. In Ukraine, in Africa, in England, Lord, have your way. Establish your hope-filled kingdom. Speak to those who hold power and say, be still and know that I am God, so that we may put down our bricks. And Lord, give us the imagination, the hope, the faith, the longing, the yearning to see your kingdom come on earth as is in heaven and begin in us and your church. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, all that you have given us, we offer back to you. You have offered us the dirt. And Lord, you form it. And so we're going to stand and we're going to sing, but Lord, may this be a prayer to you for this world as we thank you for bringing us to this part of the story. Amen.